Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Has China's power peaked? It is a question that 15 years ago would seem provocative, a conversation starter designed to be knocked down, let alone 30 years ago, when one of the few areas of total consensus among horizon scanners and futurists was the confident prediction this would be the century of China. It is now a question that a growing school of serious analysts answer in the affirmative, and I have one of the brightest members of that school with me to explain why. Michael Beckley's Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University. He has worked for the Harvard Kennedy School, the U.S. Department of Defense, the Rand Corporation, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His bylines appear in a multitude of august publications, and he is the author of Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower. Welcome to the bunker, Michael Beckley. Thanks very much for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure. Michael, can you first of all give us an overview of what sort of challenges China is facing? Because it helps to know what kind of power we're talking about, economic, military, technological, or all of the above. China's rise has been amazing, obviously, banging out 10% economic growth rates for decades and then coupling that with a massive expansion of its military. But I, I refer to China as a peaking power, that it's no longer rising. Its rise has slowed. The country's not falling into decline like the way the Soviets did in the late 1980s yet. But it's reached this inflection point where its economic growth has slowed considerably. Its population is starting to shrink. Productivity is negative. So that means China is having to spend more and more to produce less and less. And so the worry is that now that it can't just grow out of its problems through rapid economic growth, it'll switch to using military means and coercive means. And we've certainly seen that in the Taiwan Strait, uh, in the South China Sea and elsewhere. So we are talking about effectively China hitting a ceiling and being unable to expand more, but may be able to maintain it, rather than China facing a period of 
significant and sudden decline. It's possible. So some past peaking powers have been able to rekindle their rise. So the United States actually in the late 19th century was racked by a series of what at the time were the worst depressions in American history. But through the growth of its population, through expansion abroad, the United States was able to rekindle its rise. And we know the rest of that story. I am, however, quite mm. skeptical that China will be able to return to even sustained economic growth, let alone the kind of rapid growth we got used to, because China's epic rise was really an exceptional event that was propelled by a few exceptional and now fleeting circumstances. So one of those was, you know, in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, China had easy access to Western capital and markets. You had the UK, the United States, other countries fast tracking China into the WTO. Now many of those countries are slapping hundreds of trade and investment barriers on China every year. China also during its rapid period of rise had the greatest demographic dividend in history. Um, a very young population, 15 workers mm -hmm. to support every retiree. That's going to collapse to two to one uh, just over the next 10 years, two workers to support every retiree. That's going to drag down growth. Also, China used to be uh, self-sufficient in natural resources, water, arable land. It could feed itself and energy resources. But because China has plowed through a lot of those resources, now it's the world's largest importer of food and energy. And that just makes growth very expensive because you have to import all those raw materials from abroad. It's three times more expensive to produce every unit of GDP growth in China today than it was just uh, 10 years ago. But, but still cheaper than it is for us, right? So labor costs obviously are cheaper in China than, say, in the UK or in the United States. But I would point out that China's labor costs all in when you factor everything, the, the shipping, et cetera, are now much higher than in a place like Mexico. And so you're seeing, uh, especially the United States, looking to reshore a lot of operations either to Mexico or to uh, divest and go to Southeast Asia. So relative mm -hmm. to many of its economic competitors, China can no longer just count on swaths of cheap labor, especially now that the population is shrinking. Hmm. Okay, you hedged that a tiny bit, so I'm going to just push you gently a little on that. I know you can't give me a definitive answer, but what you're feeling, is China heading for a period of bobbing along, or is it heading for a period of quite serious decline? I think economically, for the next decade, it'll bob along. But I think in the long term, so going into the 2030s, 2040s, it's going to decline. Purely for demographic reasons alone, I think it's impossible for China to continue to expand its economy. The, the, most projections suggest the Chinese population will collapse in half sometime this century, with some projections saying this is going to happen in the next 35 years. We're going to be dealing with a China that is literally half the size in terms of population mm. as it is now. There's just no way to grow a bigger economy. That said, my worry is that Countries can tighten their belts economically and put more money into the military and the internal security services, kind of like a giant North Korea style route that, you know, I don't think we can rule that out in China's case. And that's mm. what worries me. You can still rise militarily even as your economy starts to stagnate or decline. On a slight tangent, how do you define a superpower? Because I think... Jane or Joe Public out in the street would scoff at the idea that China is actually not already that. 
China certainly, you know, has a big economy. It's the top trading partner in the world for most countries. But China can't do a few things that the United States can. One is that the United States is really the only country that can fight wars far beyond its own borders. So it has this system of dozens of alliances as well as military bases around the world. And then lots of what we call power projection platforms. So things like aircraft carriers that can move military forces far away, big heavy lift aircraft, nuclear powered submarines that can stay at sea for months on end. China, its its naval power, for example, really falls off a cliff once you get beyond about a thousand miles from the Chinese mainland because they have to go back to the mainland to refuel and reload. China's only ally is North Korea and it doesn't have the military bases around the world. And then economically, mm. even though in terms of GDP, the two countries are, are relatively equivalent. The United States is much wealthier on a per capita basis. And so if you subtract out all of the costs that China has to pay to support the largest population on the planet, to feed, clothe, yeah. secure, it actually drains away a lot of China's wealth. And so the U.S. just has substantially more wealth. The dollar is used in 90% of international financial transactions. So in other words, the U.S. has the power to shape the international system in ways that China can't match. Yeah, yeah, understood. Um Michael, I'm interested a little bit in the journey of your syllogism, as it were, because I think for several decades, the sense of inevitability, of inexorability attached to China's rise has seeped, I think, beyond thesis and into the, the status of axiom. You would sort of start with it as a given. Um, what made you first question that orthodoxy? And was it quite a difficult thing to do, actually, when you when you were first doing it? Did you face quite a lot of people saying, you know, your your theory is a, a joke? Yeah, my own journey started when I, I lived in China for a couple of years in the late 2000s. I actually moved there right before the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Uh, and that's sort of the, the peak of China's uh, coming out yeah. part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that opening ceremony of the Olympics remains one of the greatest visual spectacles I've ever seen in my life. So everyone just thought, you know, China's going to, um, you know, all obviously become the dominant power in the world. But it was actually just from living there. I think you, we're just more aware of a country's problems when you're dealing with it on a daily basis. So I would travel out and you see rural China where there's hundreds of millions of people living on at that at the time, less than five dollars a day on average. Um, you know, they drop out of school at, at middle school at best. You see a government, you know, there would be many times I'd be in a, a restaurant, you know, or a bar and the authorities would just come in and close the place down. So you get really get a sense that property rights are not very secure uh, mm -hmm. in this area. You see uh, the rampant pollution. You know, there's very few blue sky days in all my time in China um, and even just the infrastructure. So I when I first moved there, I was living in a brand new apartment building. But by the time I was finished with my first year in China, this giant crack was opening up in my bedroom right next to my bed. And I've, to me, it kind of became like a metaphor for China. It looks you know, you can throw up all of these apartments, et cetera. But are they really generating value uh, for the Chinese people mm -hmm. as much as we assume? I, I thought not. And then I started 
looking, digging into the data. And I just saw that for all of China's rapid growth, it was still failing to close the gap in certain key metrics, some technological metrics, just in terms of the wealth of its citizens relative to the wealth of, say, Americans. So it was the combination of data and on the ground experience that really flipped me because I used to be, you know, I, I was going to yeah, write yeah. my first book on how the United States could sort of hand off power to this new superpower. I was learning Chinese because I figured I need to speak to my future Chinese overlords, you know, in their own language. And <laughs> and um, then my time in China. Not a bad, not a bad skill to have. <laughs> yeah. Still, I, I I would think. But I'm I'm fascinated by that. So there was a sense that up close you could sense a brittleness to the grand thing that that looked from a distance. Um, you published Unrivaled, I think, in 2018. And I have read pieces by you since then in which you articulate that the failure of China's zero COVID policy has basically been emblematic of the sort of problems you were talking about. It's reaffirmed your view. Well, first of all, the, the regime itself. So the zero COVID, you know, locking down a whole country for a couple of years and then just throwing it open overnight uh, and probably end up killing a couple of million people that way. That's just one of many examples of how China has morphed back from, you know, a, a somewhat smarter form of autocracy. One, you know, with Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, there was at least some toleration of private markets and welcoming of foreign investment to under Xi Jinping. You've just seen it revert back to uh, a personalist dictatorship, a dictatorship for life. And that wouldn't be so bad if Xi Jinping was a savvy technocrat that knew how to revive China's economy. But he's routinely shown that he will slash China's economic growth if it enhances his own political control. Zero COVID is one example, crushing Hong Kong, the golden goose that played such an important role in China's mm. rise. Um, the technological regulations that erased more than a trillion dollars in market capitalization from China's most dynamic tech firms. Um, the, the fact that 80% of subsidies, which are massive, are going to these state-connected firms, many of which are loss-making. They're basically just being propped up you know, to spread the money to cronies and keep people employed, while private firms in China are starved of capital. And then just overall, the reassertion of the Chinese Communist Party into every aspect of the economy and society. Every company now has to have a, essentially a political commissar on staff that says, hey, <laughs> they get they get veto power over decisions. That's just not a great way to grow. So you've really just seen the decay of China's political institutions. And yet I would suggest in the last few months, only in the last few months, I have seen a few respectable pieces of analysis that maybe the long-term effect of the zero COVID policy was slightly over-egged by Western analysts, and that actually China has shown much more willing to inject stimulus uh, and some reform than people gave it credit for. And in its current deflationary environment, it really can lean into that. It can inject a lot of stimulus into the economy. What, what, what do you think of that? So China has been rolling out 
and President Obama-sized stimulus package, you know, the one the U.S. used to get out of the global financial crisis. They've been rolling mm. one of those out roughly every six months for the last decade. And the problem with that is it obviously racks up a lot of debt. I mean, you're just force-feeding capital into the system, which then leads to a lot of white elephant projects. I mean, we're seeing that certainly in the real estate sector where you've just built all these apartments that are either not finished or where no one is buying them. I've even seen videos where they've, they're bulldozing apartment buildings that are not even even finished yet. So it's like digging a hole and then filling it back up. So yeah, you generate a lot of GDP growth, a lot of activity, but you're not actually creating value for the Chinese people. And so the reason we're seeing such a slowdown in the economy is fundamentally because that model is now broken. It only works if you have a growing population because you have more workers and people producing yeah. money to, for taxes and more consumers to buy all the stuff that you're building. Now with this shrinking population, you mentioned deflation, China's at risk of what economists call a deflation debt cycle, where deflation makes it harder to pay off your debts. It makes it harder to raise revenue. And then uh, that leads to more debt, which then adds more back to deflation, because if people are in debt, they're not going to consume things. So you're, you're not going to have that demand push to push up prices and get the economy humming. So it's just it's a fundamentally broken economic model. And we've, just, we've seen this on smaller scales in other countries where it's just you know an investment-driven growth model, you can generate impressive returns for a decade or two, in China's case, three or four decades. But at a certain point, you hit diminishing returns, you start to rack up debt. And we're certainly seeing that in China today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I heard you debate uh, last year with Ian Bremmer, and I thought he made a pretty fair point that many of the things that you identify as weaknesses, which are weaknesses, are also areas of huge opportunity. So low skills, low productivity, um, for instance, a huge program of upskilling could have tremendous impact. I mean, is it not equally fair to say that China, for all its problems, has a lot more potential for growth than a mature Western economy? I don't think so in practice, even in theory, because first of all, China has picked a lot of the low hanging fruit. I mean, at a certain point, you've just built all the roads and bridges that you need. And that certainly seems to be the case in China today. And the problem for China is there's no demand pull now, because as rich as the Chinese regime is, the Chinese people are still quite poor. If you actually look at Chinese disposable income, it's way below the per capita income. In other words, what people actually have in their pocket is very little. And there's also almost no social 
safety net. So much of it was destroyed during the high growth years. And so people have to save everything that they make because there's no social security system they can fall back on. And in terms of the upskilling, I, I think the best book on China that seemingly no one has read is called Invisible China by Scott Roselle and uh, Natalie Hell, where they've gone into rural China and they show that there are probably 200 to 300 million rural Chinese who are essentially unemployable in a modern economy because only 30% of them have a high school degree. 70% of them are basically middle school dropouts. They're severely undernourished. And when they go to like a jobs fair where they try to transition from a construction worker job to some kind of service sector job, they're almost illiterate, you know, and they, they struggle to write their names, let alone function in some kind of office setting. And mm. so I don't know how you solve that because these people are all grown up now. It's not like you can go back and re-educate them suddenly. And so there's this huge drag on China's economy because of its systematic underinvestment in primary and secondary education, especially in the rural poor regions of the country. It was all basically focused on those rich East Coast cities. And now you just have, you know, they, they estimate 200 to 300 million unemployable workers in a modern economy. Hmm. But there are ways in which China could change that would reset it on a better path. You're just saying it's very unlikely to make those changes. But that to me is different to saying there are no paths available. Yeah, I, I absolutely, Alex. And I actually agree. I like the way that you phrased it. There's no inevitability here. It's just two things. One, the scale of the challenge is is large for some of the reasons we've talked about. And then second, I, I'm just not that confident the regime will do that. I mean, like in that Ian Bremmer debate, I said, Ian, if you were the, you know, the dictator of China, I would actually have a fair amount of confidence that China could put in the reforms <laughs> because, because, you know, he's, he's talking about all the things that frankly, Western economists they have been, yeah, yeah, it's like you, what you, what China needs to do is invest more in its people, right? Provide them with the safety net, um, basically transfer wealth from state connected firms to private firms and to households so that you get the economic dynamism, you get the domestic consumption, and basically the quality of life so that you generate sustainable economic growth. But it just seems that China, instead the strategy is now, well, we've already built out the real estate sector. We're now going to focus on what Xi Jinping calls the real economy, which basically means these strategic high-tech industries, computer chips, electric vehicles, lithium batteries, which you know are great from a technological perspective, but they're a fraction, a tiny fraction of China's overall economy. And you're basically just still finding ways to funnel the money of China to state-connected firms, many of which mm -hmm. don't generate value. And the problem is there's just vested interests. The Chinese Communist Party is an oligarchy, and they want to retain their wealth and their power. They don't want private wealth to develop, lest it become private power that they can't control. You know, and we saw this in 2013. The World Bank put together a package of 60 reform proposals so that markets would play a, what they called a decisive role in the Chinese economy. And the Chinese regime considered it and then basically implemented maybe 5% of those reforms because at the end of the day, they just realized the type of economic liberalization that the World Bank was advising would also have to translate into some political liberalization that would dilute the Chinese Communist Party's monopoly on power. And they saw how that worked out for the Soviets, you know, the complete unraveling of the regime, and they don't want to repeat that. And yet it's quite interesting that at the time you went to China, I was covering politics over here, and I think certainly in the US as well, there were a lot of politicians, primarily conservative politicians, looking over there with a little bit of envy and thinking that, 
Maybe capitalism is not contingent on democracy. Maybe there is this alternative model where we can have an authoritarian capitalist society where we dispense with the uncertainty and difficulty of elections and people having free speech and all that kind of thing. Do, do you think the thinking has adjusted to how that ended up in China? Because it seems to me to still influence political thinking, the idea that you can have this less democratic free market model. It takes a long time for perceptions to catch up. I mean, people were saying the same thing about the Soviet Union in the 60s, where it looked like they kind of had the model maybe for the future. Uh, people were saying similar things about Japan in the 80s, not so much for an authoritarian system, but just one where the state is much more involved in directing investments in the economy. And I think there are certainly advantages to a, what people call a state capitalist model. You know, you have get things done potential. You know, you need to build a bridge, you just build a bridge. And, you know, from an economic perspective, they say, if we have to clear those peasants off there, we don't have to worry about their mm. rights. We're an autocratic regime, so we can get that done. And as someone who lives by New York and has been watching the Second Avenue subway, you know, take years and decades to get done, I can see why people have that frustration with a free market democratic system. But obviously the flaw of that autocratic system is there aren't corrective mechanisms when the regime at the top is either corrupt or incompetent. And that seems to happen with all of these authoritarian regimes at some point, that the top leader makes disastrous decisions. In China's case, I mean, it, we've had a long history of the top leader making some target, like we need to produce more steel than Britain, is what Mao said. And that led to the Great Leap Forward, where peasants were melting down their pots to try to make steel. And as a result, something like 45 million people starved to death. Or Xi Jinping says, we need zero COVID. So we're just going to lock down the whole country and all the underlings go into hyperaction to achieve that. It just leads to these veering off of the plan, crazy policies that end up being much more costly. So democracy for all of its flaws, I mean, it's all about we air our dirty laundry for everyone to see, yeah, yeah. you know, opposition parties, a free press. But those are the corrective mechanisms that can stabilize it and lead to longer term sustainable growth. Listen, Michael, considering uh, we've had a period of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and <laughs> Rishi Sunak, I'm going to stay very quiet on the topic of whether democracy always yields the best leaders. Well, hey, we have we have <laughs> Joe Biden and President Trump, but, I, but that that is the genius of the system. We don't need great leaders. We can have terrible, terrible leaders, but we have ways to correct for them, to vote them out or to have opposition that hopefully leads to a better sausage overall. Okay, this leads me perfectly into my final question, because I want to bring this very much into the now, the current. When you say X will not become stronger than Y, you're not only making assumptions about X, you're also making them about Y. The U.S. is pretty involved with two major global conflicts right now. It faces a very uncertain future politically, especially in terms of foreign policy. So what I wanted to ask is, what are the major ways in which the U.S.'s progress and global clout could be seriously knocked off course? 
Well, obviously, the election coming up is a major worry. I, I think it's possible you could have a contested election, and that it's not great to not know who the commander in chief is in January mm. 2025. If you were ever looking for an opportunity, if you're Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or Kim Jong Un or the Iranian regime, what better time than when the United States is falling into internal? Chaos, And this obviously is the Achilles heel of the United States, the hyper-partisanship in politics. And it also makes the United States a potentially uncertain international actor. I don't think it's ultimately going to destroy the U.S. economy. We've The United States almost succeeds in spite of its <laughs> institutions often because it has this great piece of geography um, and a big lead already. But what I worry about is a United States that really reverts back to the sort of the pre-1945 foreign policy where it was highly unilateralist, very aloof. We don't really care what's going on in the rest of the world. We'll do some transactional deals with other countries, but we got a good thing going in the Western Hemisphere. And if Eurasia you know, devolves into chaos, that's kind of their problem. And if we have to come swooping in at the end, we might do so to claim a share of the spoils. But, you know, it's just a, a very different kind of foreign policy to the liberal internationalism that prevailed uh, over the last 80 years. And so that's my biggest worry is, is not so much the U.S. is no longer a superpower, but that it becomes a rogue superpower where it's just out for itself and doesn't care about the mm. broader system that it's helped uphold for the last 80 years. Michael Beckley, that, that was a lot of food for thought, and I am extremely grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. These conversations that I know you enjoy because you are kind enough to tell me cost money to make. So please consider supporting us from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of the late Henry Kissinger. Superpowers often behave like two heavily armed blind men feeling their way around a room, each believing himself in mortal peril from the other whom he assumes to have perfect vision. To which I would add, to those blind men, the rival's actual strength is irrelevant because the threat exists not just in fact, but partly in their respective insecurities. This is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andre. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.